0: If you would turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to be today, finishing up this chapter. We'll be looking at verses 19 through verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some in the pews near you. If you look around, there should be some blue paperback ones. Uh, Feel free to tap someone in front of you if you need to borrow theirs, that's fine. If you don't own a Bible, you can feel free and take that uh, paperback Bible home with you, and that is our gift to you. Make good use of that. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Church family, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all, To remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come today expectant, Lord, to hear from you. And Lord, as we come expectant to hear from you, we can trust that we will, Lord, because we have before us today the very word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that we don't have to wait and sit in silence while we wait for our God to speak. But you have spoken. You've spoken to us by the apostles and the prophets and given it to us in your word. Lord, let us take full advantage. Let us study, cling to, hold fast to your word. And today, Lord, as we read in the book of Acts, as you have given to us this great story of the establishing of the church in Antioch, that you might bless us, Lord. You might bless us, encourage us, Challenge us, Lord, and even refine us as to what it means to be the church of the living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I think it is an uh, important, very worthwhile thing in our lives to have role models. I think all of us probably have role models, people that throughout our life we have looked up to, people that we have admired, people that we have aspired to be like. And if, if you're here today and you can not really think of anyone like that, then, then I would encourage you to consider finding one like that. And you can, you can think of role models in all sorts of categories, right? There are role models when it comes to our jobs, people who do the job really well and are worth uh, emulating and, and following in their footsteps, the kind of a apprenticeship sort of thing. There are role models in our family and what it looks like to be a Good father, husband, we see that in grandfather. How can I be more like them? Believers who who are strong in their faith, who are strong in their evangelism, who are strong in their prayer life, who are able to teach, who are able to do these things. It's good for us to look to those believers and admire those things and aspire to those things. And on a personal level, on an individual level, that makes good sense to us. Everyone in here hears that and says, yep, that's right, that's good. But today, what I want us to think about and what I want to sort of bring us to is a similar concept of seeking role models. But in our case today, what I would hope that we would see from our text here in Acts chapter 11 is not just a a role model for an individual, but a role model for the church. I want us to look today at this church in in Antioch here in Acts chapter 11 and see the way in which Luke portrays this church how he speaks of them in such high terms, and for us to look and say, how can we become, as a church, Redeemer Fellowship Church, how can we seek to imitate and be like the church in Antioch? How can we follow the Antioch church model? We see here in the church, in the story of, in Acts chapter 11, the story of the church at Antioch, some really amazing things. And so my hope today is that we can see here from the church, things that we as a church can aspire to, things that we as a church, if we want to be a church that honors the Lord, a church that perpetuates the gospel, a church that expands the kingdom of God, what must we do? What might we be about as a church in order to accomplish these things? Because the church in Antioch is a church that accomplishes these things. We see here the early establishment of the church, but what we'll see going forward is that this church, the church in Antioch, perhaps even more than the Jerusalem church, plays a decisive role in the expansion of the kingdom of God. In fact, it is this church, the church at Antioch, that becomes the the sending church for Paul on his missionary journeys. It is from this church that missionaries are launched and that the world is reached with the gospel. This church is what we might call a sending church as it develops throughout the book of Acts. And so my hope today is that we, as a church, can look to to the church at Antioch and say, what are they doing well? How are they in lockstep with the gospel? How is it that we can emulate them so that we too might be used by the hand of God for the sake of the kingdom? And so today we're going to look at four points That we can learn four things about the church in Antioch that we can seek to emulate, that we can learn from, that we can uh, attempt to put into practice as a church. Not just as individuals, though all of these things are good for individuals as well, but to think, and I think rightly so, corporately about our spiritual development. Because we don't often think in those terms, do we? Christianity has largely become here in the West an individual religion, an autonomous religion, one that has to do simply with me and God and without a doubt there is an individual component to the church and to christianity and no one is saved by being connected to redeemer fellowship church no one is saved by being born into a christian family right it is only through personal repentance and faith in jesus christ that a person can be saved but that does not mean that christianity as a whole is to be understood purely in individual terms and in, in fact I would argue that the New Testament writes primarily in corporate terms, in terms of as a church, as a people, as a body of believers. And so I hope today that as we are here together gathered, as a body of believers, that we would learn together what it looks like to be united for the sake of the gospel, to be united together as one people and used by God in His kingdom So point number one today, as we look at this church here in Antioch, in verses 19 through 21, we see one of the first things, and perhaps one of the most difficult things, is that this is a church that was committed to reaching the lost. Verses 19 through 21 start us off by explaining how we got here. Verse 19 says, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. This is a fascinating section, fascinating two verses here in Acts 11. It's fascinating for several reasons, but the first thing I want to start off is talking about the fact that we find the church here in Antioch. Not only do we find the church here in Antioch, but we find the church expressly seeking to reach the city of Antioch. And I say that this is interesting, this is fascinating, because of what the city of Antioch was. We might not realize this because we don't hear as much about Antioch versus Jerusalem or maybe some other cities, but this was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire, second only to Alexandria uh, and one other that escapes me right now. It was the the third largest city over 500,000 people were found here in the city of Antioch so it was huge it was a it was a port city it was a place where there was a lot of trade and commerce happening but it was also a place like many of those big cities that was filled with all kinds of paganism all kinds of immorality all kinds of Debauchery, And it was, in fact, known for these things. In fact, it sat very close to a pagan temple that was known for its temple and cult prostitution. And that infiltrated the city to a large degree. It was a place where immorality run rampant to where it marked the city. A place that church planners might not initially look and think, that's where I'd like to be. And in fact, I would argue... Perhaps had it not been for the persecution experience after the stoning of Stephen, the church might not never have considered going there. But after being dispersed, after facing persecution and being pushed out to these different places, the church finds itself here in Antioch. The church was started by persecution. As we've established when we preach over the past couple weeks The reason that the church is expanding here is largely because of the persecution that the Lord is using to expand his kingdom. Charles Spurgeon says of this concept of the Lord using persecution to spread the church, he says, the malice of Satan was made the instrument of the mercy of God. Indeed, it was, wasn't it? Persecution that the church was facing, the hardship that they were facing, the the hatred and, and disdain that they were facing from the Roman Empire, from the the world around them, the Lord used that in order to expand the gospel. And one of the things that we see here at the end of verse 19, that as they were going out to these places, who were they primarily speaking to? Not only primarily, but the text says, speaking to no one except the Jews. Remember, the the church at this time is made up of overwhelmingly Jews. It is largely a Jewish church. Church, Jewish Christians, those who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, which is why, as we see later on in the text, the term Christian isn't even largely used. At this point, Christianity is seen as a a sort of sect of Judaism, followers of the way among the Jews. And so it makes sense for us when we think, as these these people are being spread out, as they are being dispersed, as they are being forced into other places, other cities, foreign places, that they would do what people always do, and they would congregate together, right? They would go and and look for other Jews to be around, other Jews to live with. Even the apostles, when they would first go into places to share the gospel, where would they always go first? They would go to the temple. The practice is the same here. The Jews were going and they were finding other Jews who they were living with, who they were spending time with, probably even going to synagogue with. But then we read in verse 20, but there were some of them. One author made the note that these guys were rebels in a sense. That there were some of these Christians who did the opposite. Though the typical model, the typical way of of sort of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ was to go to the Jews, those who, who maybe were already sort of connected with what we had going on. Those who maybe were looking for a Messiah and saying he has come. But there were some of them that did something a little bit differently. And rather than going to the Jews, they went to the Gentiles. The word here translated as Hellenist is a word we've seen before. And and you've maybe talked about previously when we've seen the word. It has often referred to Greek-speaking Jews. But the word translated into Hellenist is one that can also mean Greeks in general. It's sort of a a flexible term. So when we see it appear here, especially as we contrast it with verse 19, that they normally spoke to the Jews, we see and we understand the word Hellenist here to mean Gentiles. That these men were going out on a limb doing something that wasn't typically done and they were going and preaching to the Gentiles. Not because an angel had come and directed them to, not because they had seen a vision like Paul but because the Holy Spirit directed them to do so. To go and widely, not just to a targeted man or his family, but to the Gentiles in general, proclaiming the gospel. I love these guys here in this story. It just says in verse 20, there were some of them. These guys are unnamed. They're anonymous. And yet it is these men who come and begin preaching to the Gentiles. And out of that, the Antioch church forms. These unnamed men, these rebels as it were, who are not even mentioned by name in the text, were instrumental in bringing the church, bringing the gospel to Antioch, the place from which it would be launched into all the earth. These are the guys I want to be like. Guys who don't care about about what the other people are doing. Guys who see the gospel for what it is and say, hey, this is for everyone and it is good for all. That Jesus came as the Messiah not just to save a a select few, but he came to save the world. And so these men go and they proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. But notice what they preached. The text doesn't say that they came and preached Jesus as the Messiah. It says that they came and preached Jesus as Lord. Preaching the Lord Jesus. This is significant, right? And we, and we can see for a couple reasons why they would do this. For one, the Gentiles were, were not Jews. The Jews had a framework for a Messiah. The Jews would have been looking for one who was coming to redeem his people, to save his people. They were looking for that Messiah. And so it would make sense to appeal to the Jews on the basis of Christ Jesus the Messiah. But I find it interesting that that to these Gentiles, they preached not Jesus the Messiah, though that was certainly an aspect of what they preached, but especially emphasized Jesus as Lord. Mind you, this is in a very immoral pagan city. And they came preaching Jesus in his authority. That seems very counterintuitive to us because we might not think this, but back then they were in many cases averted to authority as well, much like we are today. No one really likes being put under authority. No one thinks it just feels great to have a a hand of authority over them. As human beings, as part of our sinful nature, it is natural for us to want to push away from Authority, push away from rules and boundaries. And clearly in Antioch, that was the case. They were happy to buck free of rules and authority. And yet, when these disciples, when these Christians came and preached Jesus, they preached Him as Lord. They preached Jesus in His authority. And that message was accepted and believed. And probably largely because one of the key aspects of Jesus' authority is his authority over death. See, the gospel is not proclaimed apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a theme that comes up over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. This emphasis on Jesus' authority, his victory over death, his power over the grave, was instrumental in proclaiming the gospel. And so these Gentile hearers, these Greeks, who would have had a a firm idea and desire for something like immortality and the deed with their their history without their their throughout their history of their greek gods immortality would have been something that absolutely had an appeal to them and so to hear that there is one who has come the one true god who has come and has authority over all things even over death itself to the point that he defeated it he rose from the grave after having truly been dead This is the Jesus that they preached. A Jesus of authority and power. Not just one that has come to give you a big hug. Not just one that has come to redeem only, but one who has come with authority and power. And it demonstrated through the resurrection. This is the Jesus that they preached. And it's the Jesus that was accepted by the lost. We are sometimes afraid to preach The authority of jesus aren't we we're afraid to proclaim to the world around us a world that rejects the scriptures a world that rejects the lord who created us we don't want to come in saying yeah but jesus has authority over all things that's not a message that we feel comfortable sharing it's not a message that most people enjoy hearing and yet what kind of god what kind of messiah are we truly perpetuating if we refuse to speak of the authority of christ that he has over our life, and that he has over all the world. It is indeed in his authority that he will return to judge, isn't it? And therefore, it is, is, is his authority that the world needs to hear. We see that this was a church committed to reaching the lost, not just the Jews, but the Gentile Also, the church in Antioch, even from its founding, from these few rebellious men who went and preached to the Jews, it was a church committed to reaching the lost. Point number two, this was a church committed to encouragement. Verses 22 through 24, we read of of what happens after the gospel begins to be proclaimed to the Gentiles. Verse 21, first of all, says that a great number who believed turned to the Lord among the Gentiles. And this got back to the church of Jerusalem. And so what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch to investigate. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, or excuse me, so Barnabas, when he came, saw the grace of God. and He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then the text says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Here we see Barnabas, this man who's described earlier in the book of Acts as the son of encouragement. That's what his name Barnabas means. He is the one that that the church of Jerusalem, the sort of mother church, when they heard of these Gentiles and what was going on over in Antioch, certainly there was probably still a certain amount of skepticism. So they said, okay, well, We need to figure out what's going on. Who are we going to send? And by God's grace, and certainly he was sovereign in this decision, they send this one Barnabas, son of encouragement, to go and see what the Lord is doing in Antioch. Remember the last time we saw Barnabas? It was when Paul was coming before the Jewish council. And there was much dispute over what they were going to do, over whether or not he should be accepted. And who was it that stood in defense of Paul? It was Barnabas. It was Barnabas who stood up and proclaimed to the Jewish council, the Lord has saved this man. Look what he has done. He was the one who vouched for Saul. He was the one who came and said, the Lord can do what he wants to do. Do not doubt my God. It was this man whom they sent to go and see what was going on in the church at Antioch. This man, by the way, if you remember... Barnabas was not his actual name. In fact, his name was Joseph. But the book of Acts mentions that briefly in the beginning of the book. And then for the rest of the book, he is called Barnabas, son of encouragement. This was his true identity. This this, this is who this guy was. He was a guy that was known for his encouragement. And that is exactly what the church needed at this time. The church needed one who would come and would encourage it. You know this early church at this time, like many churches when they first start, like many people when they first receive the spark of the gospel. There are many cases in which, when people first receive the spark of the gospel and their heart is changed and they believe that, like like tinder when you're starting a fire, it can often take a spark really quickly and burn really fast and really hot. You know this if you've ever lit a fire and you, you've been camping and you you build up this structure. You start with the tinder you start with the stuff that's easy to light, easy to spark, and the kindling so that you might get a small flame going because it will burn fast and it will burn hot. But what happens if you come and you take that, that church, that, that little piece of, of kindling and, and tinder that's on fire, and you just throw a bunch of logs on it right after you light it? It's going to be gone, right? It's going to be smothered. And I would argue in this case that with the church in Antioch, because certainly this was a church of Gentiles. Barnabas didn't get here to the church in Antioch and it looked exactly like what they were doing in Jerusalem. I guarantee you it didn't. First of all, it was a church full of uncircumcised people. That alone was a unique thing. The worship probably looked different as these people had come out of pagan backgrounds and into the faith. It probably looked totally and very different from the worship of the church in Jerusalem. But when Barnabas got there, he didn't immediately go, this is weird, this is bad, get rid of this, start doing this, and change all of their practices, and just burden them down with these, with these things that are extra gospel, that are, that are additions to the gospel. What Barnabas does, this son of encouragement, is that he sh- shows up at the church in Antioch, and seeing the spark that the Holy Spirit had started seeing the flame that was beginning to grow, rather than snuff it out, immediately began to nurture it. He began to encourage it. He began to encourage the church. He saw that the gospel had taken root and it was not his place to come and and snuff it out, but to encourage them and fan that spark into a flame. That was indeed the purpose that the Lord had selected him for Additionally, one of the defining marks of, of Barnabas that we see in this text is also his humility. As Barnabas comes and he, he sees what the Lord is doing here and he, he encourages the church and he rejoices with the church. He had a position where he could have started making changes. He could have taken over this church, but he did not. I think as believers, those of us especially, if you've been a believer for a long time, we sometimes forget what that experience is like when we first come to faith in Christ, when we first enter into the kingdom of God. And when we see it in others, aren't we sometimes quick to judge? Aren't we sometimes quick to want to criticize whatever's going on, whatever might be weird, whatever might be strange? When we should be encouraging, when we should be coming alongside and fostering that and growing that, Let's look at the example of Barnabas here. To come where the gospel is taking root, where the Holy Spirit is working, and do everything we can not to rebuke, not to snuff that out, but to fan that into something more. That's exactly what Barnabas does. One of the main ways that he does that is by what we see in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. In his humility barnabas who could have taken over this church it could have been his church and no one would have complained and in fact people might have been thankful to have barnabas this encouraging man there to be their leader to be their pastor to exhort them to teach them but barnabas knew something he knew that there was this guy who he had stood up for before the jerusalem council who was in tarsus who was previously a devout Jew, someone who knew the Scriptures well, one who had already demonstrated his ability to teach and to use the Scriptures. And he said, what this church needs is someone like Saul, someone who's an effective teacher, who knows the Word, and who can give it to these people well. And so rather than seeking the the glory for himself, rather than taking on this church as his church, what Barnabas does is he goes and finds Paul. And he brings him back in verse 25 and 26. When they found him, when he found him, that is Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Point number three that we see from the church in Antioch is that they were committed to right teaching. Barnabas and Saul understood that As this little spark of a church, as the tinder had been lit and the the kindling was ready to burn, what they needed was not to be snuffed out, but what this church needed was to be fed. And Barnabas and Saul knew full well that what this church needed to be fed was the gospel. It was the very word of God. Faithful instruction from the word of God is what this church, this little church, as it was just born, as it was barely a spark, a tiny little flame, needed the gospel. They needed the word of God to come and and instruct them and grow them. Because indeed, besides snuffing out maybe someone or or a church or a, a movement that is just getting started, that is one problem, right? Coming and snuffing it out by criticizing everything wrong with it. But on the other end, haven't there been movements or even Christians that have come to faith in Christ and who were sparked and had a flame, but then were left to themselves? Were given no instruction, were given no discipleship, and left to wither? An apathy? Let us not do that. Let us learn from the church in Antioch, as led by Barnabas and Saul, that what the church needs, whether the church in infancy For the church, after a hundred years, what a church needs in order to be a faithful gospel-centered church is faithful instruction from the word of God. The work there in Antioch was so effective that it is here that the word Christian first appears. The word Christian might have appeared for, for various reasons, one of which being that this was a largely Gentile audience now. These were not Jews, so it was no longer considered to be a Jewish sect, these were Gentiles who were coming to faith in this guy, Jesus, who were becoming followers of Jesus. Not only followers of Jesus, Jesus, but were so radically committed to living under his authority that they were looked at by the world around them, by the rest of the people there in Antioch, and they were ridiculed and called Christians. Little Christ. It was originally a term of derision. It was an insult. Look at these, these people who have accepted Christ teaching. They're like little Christs all running around. And what did the church do? They didn't get offended. So, hey, oh, how dare you call us name little Christ. They said that's got a nice ring to it. What a privilege it would be to be called little Christ followers of Jesus. Their lives, get this. Their lives were so radically changed by the gospel and they were so radically committed to the word of God that the culture around them says you look just like Jesus as an insult. My prayer is that we would be insulted this way. That people would look at us and call us, oh, you little Christ, you holy roller, you Bible thumper, whatever sort of insult you can think of that's supposed to run us down when really it's a byproduct of being being committed to God's word. What we see here as well In the fact that this is Saul of Tarsus that is here now ministering to this church in Antioch. What this is really though as well is it's a snapshot of the kind of miracles that God performs in this world as he is accomplishing his work. Think about this. Verse 19 says what it is that caused the spread of the gospel, right? It was persecution. After what? The stoning of Stephen. Where do we first see Saul appear in the story of Acts? It's at the stoning of Stephen, isn't it? It was at his feet that people were bringing their coats and laying them down. He was a part of the, the problem. He was a part of the persecution. He was instrumental in the facilitation of the persecution that led to the gospel spreading and that led ultimately to the church at Antioch being planted. And now it is this very church... That is a direct result of the persecution that Saul brought that he is now ministering at. And where he will one day be sent out from. What a beautiful miracle that is. The very man who was bringing persecution on the church is now ministering at a church that directly resulted from that. What a beautiful picture that is of the way the Lord works. How he accomplishes miracles. Not just a miracle in the saving of the Gentiles but also a miracle in the planting of the church at Antioch, but also a miracle in the saving of Saul. Miracle after miracle after miracle to lead to this place where the very persecutor of these churches, of these people, is now ministering to them and pouring into them. They were committed to this right teaching. So the church is, is committed to reaching the lost. They were committed to encouragement. They were committed to right teaching And then finally, they were committed to caring for each other. We see in verses 27 through 30, what might seem to us a rather interesting story to be inserted into the text here. We read this, and at first we might think that this portion of the chapter, Luke is just throwing in some random story. Like he was going to write about it, but then like, oh, I forgot. Where am I going to put that? I'll just tuck it in here in chapter 11. That's fine. Just put it in here, right? But when you read it and you begin to understand the significance of what is actually happening here, you see that there's nothing random about where Luke, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is placing this story. In verse 27, we see the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, Agabus, one who we will see later, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This seems like a weird story, doesn't it? Out of place, what does it mean? But I would argue that this, of all that we have seen from the church in Antioch, is perhaps perhaps the most amazing display of a group who has been redeemed by Christ. And the reason I say that is because as Aaron and I have said over the past few weeks, you maybe have getting getting tired of hearing it. The Jews and Gentiles, they didn't like each other very much. They hated one another. The disdain that the Jews had for the Gentiles, we've covered in depth. You weren't allowed to eat in a Gentile's house. You weren't allowed to buy food if it was prepared by a Gentile. All this stuff. The Jews just hated the Gentiles. But guess what? It was very reciprocal. The Gentiles had no liking for the Jews. They hated them. They looked down on them. It was a very mutual kind of hatred and disgust that they had for one another. And so it's it's amazing to think that the Lord is now breaking down these barriers, these walls, and is making out of these two one church, but that's exactly what he's doing. And we see a display here from the church in Antioch of exactly what this kind of gospel barrier breaking down looks like and that is by the fact that as this famine was predicted as the prophet spoke and this church in Antioch a gentile church considered what they ought to do what is it that they do they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea they commit themselves to let go of the bitterness that existed, to let go of the hatred that likely still was a remnant, still was, was there in their hearts for the, the Jews, and say, we, this Gentile church here in Antioch, we, choo- we are choosing to lay aside our bitterness, lay aside our differences, forgive one another, not only forgive, but put our words into action. And they sent relief. Each one of them, as they were able came together to send relief to the church in Judea. What was the church in Judea? It was no Gentile church. It was a Jewish church, primarily. We see the Lord literally in the hearts of these people here in Antioch, removing their hatred, removing their bitterness, and pushing them towards loving and caring for one another. They were radically committed to caring for one another. Not just the other Gentiles in their midst, but their brothers and sisters in Christ across the land. Even the Jews, the ones who hated them and they hated. Guess what, church family? There was no longer Jew or Gentile. Even already we are seeing that. We are already seeing that the gospel is having its effect. It is doing the work of removing the bitterness, removing the hatred, removing the prejudice here we have another difficult example for us to follow. As Christians, those who have experienced the grace of God, those who have been given, forgiven so much in Jesus, have been redeemed, that have been reconciled to God, don't we still find it so easy to cling to bitterness, to cling maybe even to hatred or prejudice against other people? How quick we are when someone wrongs us or, or, or at least a perceived wrong to write them off entirely. To be done with them all together. It's a really sad state for believers to be in where we would say, yep, there's discord, there's frustration, there's bitterness, and that's fine by me. But so often in our hearts, that's where we allow ourselves to stay. Oftentimes, even with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Church family, if we are to be like not only the church in Antioch, but if we're to be like Christ, then we are to let go of bitterness. We are to remind ourselves of the gospel that we were once enemies of God. And he acted to save us. As we stood firm and resolved in our rebellion, he moved to save us, to make us not his enemies, but his children. We ought also... To be ready and willing to remove all bitterness from our heart. To confess that to the Lord. As painful as it is to confess our sin. As painful as it is to let go of these things that we cling to so much. When we feel that we have been wronged. That we have been hurt. And yet that's exactly what the gospel calls us to. A radical kind of forgiveness. A radical kind of reconciliation. A radical care for one another. Here in this city. This city which is known for its immorality, its paganism, we see the Lord building His church. Building His church in the same way He built the church in Jerusalem. In fact, the parallels as we've, as we've just walked through the establishment of the church in Antioch are rather striking. Back in Acts 2, 42-45, we see what was happening when the Jerusalem church was being started. This is directly after Pentecost. We see Acts 2, 42-45... And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There we have a commitment to right instruction. And to the fellowship. There we have concern for one another, encouraging one another, breaking of bread and of prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And check this out. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many had need. Sounds a lot like what the church in Antioch is doing now, doesn't it? Only with one significant difference, they're not just distributing the goods among the needs here in this Jewish church, but these Gentiles are taking up offerings, giving of what they have to give to their Jewish brothers. The Lord God is growing his church, establishing his church, just the same here as he was when he was doing so in a predominantly Jewish culture right after Pentecost. And what the church in Antioch actually presents to us is a beautiful and dramatic picture of the unmistakable work of Christ to radically change sinful people, to radically change sinful people into a royal priesthood, into a chosen generation, As Peter tells us, what we see here is a work that could be credited to no one other than the sovereign Lord of the universe. Because this kind of reconciliation doesn't take place anywhere else. That people would be so radically changed, not just one individual, but a whole group of people so radically changed and and marked by the gospel and by love, they would lay aside their bitterness, they would lay aside their prejudice for the sake of the gospel, for Christians, I think there are two angles of application for us to consider today. And the first is that of a corporate perspective. That we, as a church, are called to be like the church in Antioch. And these are difficult questions to ask ourselves, but we must ask them. Are we committed to seeing the lost saved? Are we committed to encouraging one another? Are we committed to right teaching? And are we committed to to caring for one another, even in a radical way, even when it means putting aside our preferences, our own bitterness, our own hurt feelings. These are difficult questions for us to self-examine and consider, but we must as a church think, are we imitating the church at Antioch or do we look like something else? Let us think corporately. Let us think as a people how we might imitate Christ's church in Antioch. But then also, from a personal perspective, there's this guy named Barnabas in this text that we just can't forget, that we just can't skip over, a guy that frankly probably doesn't get his due. Paul's great, yes, but let's look at Barnabas for a second, this son of encouragement, who was never even called by his own name, Joseph, because he was so known for his encouragement. that would be like the guy who, who's always seen riding his unicycle around. That guy quickly becomes unicycle guy, right? He's not Joe, he's not Pete, it's unicycle guy. What if our encouragement, our our spiritual gifts were so on display in this way that people didn't call us by our name anymore, but called us that guy who sure loves people well, that guy who loves to serve, that guy who knows how to encourage? Wouldn't it be great if that's what we were known for? among one another and among the outside world. Church family, consider how you can be like Barnabas, how you can encourage one another, how you can pour into one another, not snuff one another and not encourage one another to the exemption of true and right teaching. But by the power of the gospel and step with the word of God, encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. We see the good that it did here, that it was Barnabas's ministry here that helped to establish and indeed was foundational in establishing this church in Antioch. But here's something interesting to note. How does this chapter end? And they did so, that is, they sent relief, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. We don't see that anymore in this text, the order of those names, Barnabas and Saul. Why? Because Barnabas in his humility and his desire to put people who, who have gifts, who are able to teach, who are able to do these things in the right place and to take a back seat. For the rest of Acts, when we see these two names together, how do we see them? Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas humbles himself, taking the side seat Saying, if this other person is more gifted, even if I would like to do this thing, even if I would enjoy the, the benefits that come from it, let him teach. And he, That's a great act of wisdom too, isn't it? To see the giftings of other people and encourage them in that and put them where they need to be. Church family, let us be like Barnabas. In both cases, corporately being like the church at Antioch and personally being like Barnabas, It is as simple as this. It means to be a people, to be a person, to be a church that is committed to the gospel. That the gospel so infiltrates all that we do and all that we are, that it's going to seep out around the edges. That it's going to guide us into all truth. That it's going to direct us in our spiritual gifts and our encouragement and our teaching and our discipleship. All these things, if we are radically and wholly committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that reminds us that barriers have been broken down. Whatever barrier might exist between people in Evansville, between people across the country, between people across the world, in Christ Jesus, they are all gone. They are all broken down by his power and by his authority. The same authority and the same power by which he rose from the dead, he is building and uniting his church. Let us boldly proclaim that. Let us exemplify that in our lives and let us declare it to the world around us. Let's pray.